I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. This is the mindset and the values. And the mindset is sort of how you think your intentions you remember the Pygmalion effect years and years ago of, you know, the teachers, what they believed about the students actually created the result. So the same thing is true in your business. And the values are really important because values are a cluster of beliefs. It's what you believe to be true. And those beliefs create attitudes. You can't see a person's beliefs but you can see and hear and experience their attitudes. And then those attitudes create behaviors. So if you want to change your people's behaviors, you have to start with values. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it.
What if I told you that it's possible to build a business that continues to grow even after you're out, allowing you to embark on other journeys while still reaping the rewards from the success of the business you built? Today's guest, Sue Dyer, is a perfect example of someone who achieved exactly that through nurturing a high-trust environment in every organization she stepped into. Sue is the first woman in the U.S. to head a huge construction trade association. She has represented 200 construction companies negotiating their collective bargaining agreements and mediating their disputes. Sue's been in the game for over 40 years. During that time, she's worked on more than 4,000 construction projects and brought in over $180 billion for over 48,000 executives and leaders across the globe. She's now helping other companies and leaders reach that same level of sustainability and profitability through her models of collaboration, trust and integrity, and high performance. In this episode, you'll learn the six principles that help Sue achieve tremendous success in the business sector as well as in the government sector. You'll learn what it takes to build a successful organization based on trust. Most importantly, you'll learn how to ensure that your business is flourishing years after you're gone. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Sue has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. She's giving you free access to her Trusted Leader Profile Assessment Tool. This tool allows you to understand your current leadership style and measures your progress as you work to increase your atmosphere of trust. You'll also be able to see if there are any gaps between how you perceive you are leading and the norms that you are creating. When your business is not built on a foundation of trust, you put your business at risk. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 86. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Sue Dyer. Well, Sue, I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining. And I can't wait to really dig into all the cool stuff that you're doing in the world. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I'm excited to be here. I'm a fan of the show and a fan of yours, and I listen every week. And so this is a real treat for me. Oh, thank you. It's always nice, you know, getting a chance to spend time with people that kind of know the work that I do and have an appreciation for, you know, lifestyle and passive income and building the life of their dreams just intentionally. And I know that you're an incredibly intentional person. So this is going to be a really fun episode. And uh, our good friend, Amber Vilhauer connected us. That's how we originally met. And uh, it was just really easy to connect. You and I have so much in common. We think very similarly. We've got an interesting path that kind of intertwines our, our history. Our, our experience is very similar, except that we took two different paths. And I'd love to kind of really figure out how you got into you know this, this zone of leadership, because you are a big name in the world of leadership. Well, thank you for that. That's, gee, that's nice to hear. I should tell my mom if she was still around. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I became a leader back in long, long time ago, like four decades ago, when I became the first woman in the United States to head up a huge construction trade association. And in that role, kind of two things that really changed my life. One was that 
I was the first woman at the bargaining table with all of the construction crafts. And so I represented 200 construction companies and I negotiated all the collective bargaining agreements and then mediated all the disputes that happened between everyone. And so that was interesting. And then also taking over a construction trade association where the very first meeting I ever went to, there was a knockdown drag out fist fight. And, And so, you know, you have those times in your life when you just feel like, okay, there has got to be something different here. And I set off on a journey to prove that you could be at least as successful by cooperating than competing, and that we could take a partnering approach to both dealing with the unions and internally with all those people that we had to deal with. And that really set me off into this mission, a mission that's been going on for about 40 years. And I've learned over the time, developed more and more and more models to prove how can you have a predictable success. And it's by collaborating, by cooperating, by creating high trust, high performing businesses and teams. And so I kind of became a thought leader in construction and developed a lot of programs there. And uh, now sold my business, but I didn't sell my intellectual property. So I felt like, well, I'm not really done with my job yet. And I have been intervener and facilitator, helping leaders create this high trust environment. And now I want to teach the leaders themselves how to do this for themselves. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, that, that's just incredible what you've been able to accomplish here, Sue. And, and what's really neat is you spent almost 40 years of your life in this space, in really building these trusted leadership models. And I don't know if a lot of people recognize, because I know you're not you know, big at being like a showboat or anything. So people probably just don't know that you've brought in over $180 billion for over 48,000 executives and leaders across the globe. And, and that is no small feat. So very impressive. What I love is that you not only are a thought leader, but you're an entrepreneur at heart. And so you kind of uh, went through this entrepreneurial journey and emerged partway through it as this thought leader, yet you're still balancing how to run your own business while you're educating and teaching. And by the way, this is educating at the university level, at the corporate level, you know, kind of like a CEO whisperer. And, and so it, it's really neat to see. And I, I'd love to learn more about kind of how you got to where you are. Well, you know, as, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about when I was working with all of the contractors in what is now United Contractors Association, I would listen to them. And, you know, I, what I loved about construction, it was like some of them had an eighth grade education back in those days, especially, but they were multimillionaires. And I would listen to their stories. And then after a few years, I said, you know, I just got to start my own business. They all completely understood that, oh yeah, you got to go out and start your own business. So I went out, I started my own business and I started really what I wanted to do is I saw what my models were working so well there 
and with the unions, I was like, is this just a weird thing? Is it just here? And what, what, you know, can it happen somewhere else? So I, I took on leading eight other construction trade associations all at the same time and proved that the model worked then as well. So it wasn't just a weird anomaly. It actually could work. And then I moved on and said, well, what if I'm not in charge? I started doing consulting, working with leaders in their businesses to say, well, can, I, can they work here? Does, it, does the model work here? And it worked there. So then I thought, well, let's take on projects and project teams. And when it's multiple companies coming together and a large construction project, it's a hundreds of companies coming together. Can it work there? And it worked there. And so then it can work in government. So I worked at state level. I've worked at the city level, municipal level, federal level. Yes, it works there. So I was sort of a whole journey of proving once I sort of created the models, do they work? And then continuously tweaking them until I had something that was predictable. That yes, it shouldn't be that we start our business or we start a project or we start an initiative and we we hope that the gods are with us and it's successful. How do we make sure that it's predictable that it will be successful? And so that's sort of been the journey. And it's been over, you know, 35 years I had my business and sold it. And uh, when I started the business, even then, my goal was for the business to last at least 100 years. So I, I designed it so that I could hand it off. And the person I've handed it off to how we'll have it another 30 or 35 years and hand it off to someone else. Well, congratulations, first and foremost, for even being able to sell a business. You know, the, the odds are really against any entrepreneur that they'll even have a successful business. Then those that are successful, it's generally at a small scale. And the ones that have massive success often can't exit because they are the face of the business or it's just not built to operate beyond what they can do. They basically have more of a sole proprietorship than they do a business. And so the, the fact that you could exit is just incredible. So I, I want to celebrate that fact because most entrepreneurs don't do that. They're just on to the next thing. So congratulations there. And I want to dig into some of those numbers, but before we do, and just some of like that process of what it looks like, but before we do, I want to know just how drastically different it is to kind of incorporate these leadership principles and, and you've got a protocol, you've got yours is what you do is systematic, but what does that look like? Like, what are the differences between doing this in the business space versus in the government space? Because I've got to imagine bureaucracy kind of creeps in and there are complications that maybe don't exist in, you know, more corporate America and, and vice versa, probably pros and cons to each side, right? Yeah, you know, government tends to be more bureaucratic. But honestly, when you work with really large corporations, they're just as bureaucratic. The decision-making is probably the biggest difference. The locus of control for who can make a decision in government is usually diversified, you know? So it's hard to have someone that has enough power to actually make a decision for direction. That is the biggest challenge. 
And when I've worked in government, but I would honestly, you have the same problems in sometimes in, in large corporations too. They're multinational, they have different divisions. It's it's uh, you know, it's it can be just as challenging. But in government, it's so fun to work with because it's big, it's challenging, and the people feel as though they're unimportant. Interesting. But when you can help them feel empowered to co-create solutions, not only do they feel empowered, they actually implement them. And so uh, you begin to get movement. And then my philosophies in really, really large governments is to, like, that's why starting at a project level or an initiative and co-create what I call a shadow organization that has this high trust, high performing culture that the team creates, and they create extraordinary outcomes. And then other people go, well, how did you do that? And so then they want to learn. And then another one wants to learn. And then pretty soon someone at the higher levels begins to go, what's going on over there? How are they doing that? That seems crazy. And so then they begin and get involved. Now you can actually change culture. Because culture exists in your policies, practices, and processes. So if you really want to know what the culture of your organization is, whether you're an entrepreneur or a government, you got to look at what are our policies and do they really support trust and empowerment? What are our practices, which are really policies that aren't written down? And what are our processes? Do they really empower people to own the solutions, to own the outcomes? So I think government is, it does take a long time, but it's really because you've got, you know, 100,000 people working. It takes a long time to turn a boat that's that large, but it's well worth the effort. I know I was um, so privileged to be nominated by a, one of the, the state government here where I live for an award. And in the award, they said that the efforts that we had made just on a particular project saved them $50 million. So I know some other people have said that we have saved billions of dollars for the taxpayer. So it's just really fun to do, but it's really rewarding when people were kind of asleep and not engaged and maybe even feeling like they wanted to quit are now fully immersed, engaged, and excited. That's what I really love. Well, it's incredible to have that type of impact. I mean, those are big numbers you're talking about. And it's a lot of people. It's a lot of influence. And there's so much I want to get into. I mean, I want to get into the actual subject matter of your leadership programs. And, and we will do that today. And in fact, you, you recently wrote a new book. And I definitely want to get into that. Before we do, though, I want to hear a little more about your journey. What made you decide to sell? Often when people start a business, they never realize how big it could get. I mean, some people, you know, have these grandiose plans, but most successful people, I would say, probably successful from a business standpoint, probably underestimate how big they can grow a business, like what it actually becomes. And yours became a a very substantial business. So why sell it? And what has that transition been like for you? So, you know, the decision to sell the business... Well, let me just back up a little bit. Probably about 10 years into the business, I remember sitting down with my husband and calculating how much money do we need outside of retirement to never have to work another day. And so we calculated that number 
And then we work towards that number. And I would say it probably took us something like, because we were already on our way, probably took us like five years to get there. And then after I got there, I was like, well, do I retire? What do I do? But see, this is my life's work. So it's like, well, you can't exactly retire from your life. So I kept on moving along, but I had in my head, I need to find a successor. I need to find a succession process. And you were talking too about how do you grow beyond yourself? Honestly, I see that as a huge mental barrier most entrepreneurs have. I see it all the time. And to me, it's like you got to get past that. And it's sort of like being pulled through a knothole because it really is different. It's changing the way you think. It's thinking we instead of I. It's selling the team. It's selling. It's, it's very different. And most people don't do that. So I had started to do that and growing and so that I could hand it off. So really before I sold, I had developed a team. I had mentored a team for years and years and years. People that come to work for us in that business, we used to tell them, look, it takes about 18 months to just understand what it is we do. Took time to build that and to build a team that knew what to do, how to do it. There's science too, but there's also art. And the art part takes more reps. You got to have more reps to understand how do you actually make these things happen. So that's when I sort of about 10 years ago decided that I was going to sell. And so began to mentor the team to operate without me. And now most of the projects we work on are three to 10 years long. Average is probably five. So you got to start out far enough so that, you know, you're finishing up the project that I'm handing off, handing off projects. I'm not starting any new ones. I'm handing them off. So really for me, it started uh, a long time out and, uh, you know, I've done succession planning for other people. And I know that in order for succession to be successful, you have to start at least five years, preferably about 10 years prior to when you want to leave. And that's what we did. And so it has been extremely successful and extremely rewarding because I'm so tickled to see the business has not missed a beat. The revenues have not dropped one iota. They have grown. And so that's exciting to me. And I still have my intellectual property, which we have a scorecard system, a program. We have other things that I've created. And I've got a series of books I'm writing. And so this first book I wrote was The Trusted Leader, because I knew from my experience that if I wanted to create high trust culture in any organization, it starts with the mindset of the leader, because so many times we're hitting that barrier of the leader doesn't know how to create trust. And so they're creating a ton of fear And then that drives out all the trust. And so it's sort of like having your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. And they wonder, why are we not going anywhere? My people must not be doing what I want them to do, or my people must be wrong, or I'm not hiring the right people. When in fact, they're creating the fear that's creating that, (laughs) let that off and the car can go forward. You You can get a lot of momentum. A lot of resources are wasted with fear. 
Yeah. Well, it's cool to hear your story. It's amazing that you can build a company that continues to grow even after you're out, but then you can maintain some of that IP to be able to continue with the thing that has been your baby really for 35 plus years. And so bravo to you for figuring out a way to do that. That's incredible. You started talking about succession planning and I can't help but go to the show, the HBO series Succession. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. (laughs) Oh yeah, I have. Yeah. It is so entertaining. That is not a high trust family. No, (laughs) no, it is not. It is. I mean, dogging dog family. (laughs) It is. It is so entertaining and so fascinating. And it's just a whole nother world, but this is why you have to succession plan. Like this is, if you don't do this, then the craziness that you see in that show happens because there's no communication about it. There's no plan about it. It's just everything's up in the air and everyone's out for themselves. Well, the the interesting thing about that show is while it's around succession, the same dynamic happens on whatever it is you're doing in your business. If you have a person that kind of uh, has most of the power, which is what it is in most organizations, and it doesn't matter whether they're family or not, people are vying for this power that's going to be let go of. And so you get all this competition going on and competition is always adversarial. And in a business, you're interdependent. So whenever you have an adversarial mindset or adversarial processes in an interdependent system, that is a lose-lose. And it happens all the time. The other thing we see all the time in businesses, when you have a person at the top who doesn't take the power, then all the power diffuses down into the organization and the leaders vie for power. And that's how you get turf wars and clicks. And for a business, you really want global optimization But most of the time, everybody's vying for their own little local optimization. We're going to do good right where we are. We don't care. They they can't even see the whole picture. So that's why you got to try to help them see the whole picture, be a part of optimizing the entire business so that you aren't just doing really well in one little thing, one little piece. And then the rest of the business is just like flabbing and not doing well. You're just not aligned. Uh, I call it the nozzle effect. So if you put a nozzle on a garden hose and you tie it down, you focus it to a very narrow spray, same resources, but now you've got a huge force, huge momentum. Same thing happens in our scorecard that we have where we measure every month what the team has agreed to do between one poor, five great. We also then look at all those scores and we have an algorithm that calculates a momentum score. And Your momentum, you can have negative momentum and you can have positive momentum, but it's a great predictor of what's going to happen so that the team and the leaders can then put their resources where they need them. It's not a policing thing. It's just really like when you're driving down the freeway and they get those, it tells you you're, you're going too fast, slow down. This is your speed. That's what it is. It's just purely a measurement so that the team can steer. Because that's a problem with so many businesses is they can't steer. They don't have enough feedback to really steer. And people didn't take ownership. Yeah, those are really good points. And I love the analogy, the, the nozzle analogy. I think that's brilliant. 
You know, one of the other interesting things that I see with entrepreneurs, and I interview entrepreneurs all the time, I have a ton of them in my mastermind. One of the things that is very common is that entrepreneurs don't use their business to create wealth. And I know that we're in alignment on that. And you've met a ton of entrepreneurs, you've worked with them, you've coached them. I'd be curious to get your feedback on that and why you think that is. Like, what, you know, is it self sabotage? Is it ignorance? Like, what is it that a lot of these really high income earners are not? And by the way, not all entrepreneurs are high income earners, but plenty of them are, yet they're not using these resources to build wealth. I agree 110% with that, Justin. I don't understand why someone would spend the amount of energy and time it takes to create a business to not use that business to create wealth. And I see it all the time. Like it isn't even in their brain that that's a possibility. Now, sometimes I think there's a lot of um, barriers, personal barriers you have about that. Like people may feel unworthy or they don't feel as though they're capable of doing it. But I also know there's a lot of businesses that don't really make any money. They have income, they have cash flow, but they aren't, there's no, no money that drops to the bottom line. So that, I think that's another barrier is you're not really making money. It's just, um, you're just, you're just moving deck chairs on the Titanic, I guess, you know, you're just moving money. You're not really making money. And I think the other thing is, is it takes a discipline. You have to have to wrap your mind around your business to know how much money are you spending? How much money are, can you afford? What's your profit levels? How much margin are you going to get from this? And just have a feel for it. Like there, at any time, I could tell you, yeah, we've got about this, how much we're, we're about here for the year. We're about, and I would not be off by more than a few thousand dollars. I mean, you just have a feel for it, you know, after, over time. But it does take discipline, especially when you're beginning to build wealth. I believe in, you know, investing and taking that, I guess it's like, like Mike McCallowitz talks about pay yourself first before I knew that was a thing. You know, you just, you take a certain amount of money every month and you, you just, you invest that money and uh, you just do it over and over and over and over and over again. Like for my grandchildren, I have three grandsons. And so every single month we invest money for them. And on their birthdays, we invest money for them. And on Christmas, we invest money for them. And then that way they, they're beginning to learn how to invest and that it, you need to invest and that it's just a routine thing, like a savings and an investment. And, you know, just, I really think it's the saddest thing maybe there is out there for entrepreneurs is that they don't use their business to create their wealth. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. 
You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash MHP and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Well, I think part of the underlying issue here is that as an entrepreneur, so many things are geared around measuring revenue, that your success comes from measuring revenue. But in most businesses, that's not the key. I mean, there are some businesses where you are going to get a multiple based on revenue. Most businesses, that's not the case. And so a lot of people will sacrifice the money that they can make today to roll it all back into the business to grow that top line revenue. And by the way, there's so many like organizations that in order to get into the organization, you have to be at a certain revenue. And so revenue numbers are glorified, not profit numbers, not profit margins, like the things that just to me are more fundamental and more foundational. And I, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs fail because they focus on revenue and not profit. And, and even more specifically, not on cash flow. Like you might have a nice profit and loss statement, but you have zero cash flow and your business can sink. And so that is just so important. And the way that uh, I think from a, I don't know, entrepreneurial standpoint or societal standpoint, we just have glorified numbers that are less relevant or less important to the overall health for most businesses. So that probably plays a role. I think that's really smart because especially now that you see a lot of uh, tech companies, tech type companies who are pre-revenue, something you're like, you know, that's not a business, guys. <laughs> that's a hobby. And yeah, we do. There are a lot of thresholds that are measured by revenue. The Fortune 500, for one, a lot of them are. Doesn't mean they're making any money. It doesn't mean they made any money. And so I think that's a very dangerous thing to just look at your top line. I would rather have a small $5 million business with a 50% margin or 70% margin than a $100 million business with a 0% margin or 1% margin. I mean, you, not only it's not just about the money, it's the complexity, because what kills businesses is complexity. Yeah. And, you know, people can make the argument. I mean, 
hey, Amazon wasn't profitable for 14 years or whatever it was, but they're the anomaly of the story. Most of the other companies that weren't profitable that long died. You know, they failed. But if you look at the Fortune 500, there are a lot of companies that are not profitable inside the Fortune 500. It's it's mind boggling. And I get that there are exceptions to the rule. I get that there are, you know, if you have a software business or, you know, there are certain industries where you're going to get a multiple on revenue, not on EBITDA. You might even get a multiple on monthly recurring revenue as opposed to annual. So it's based, you know, on that current run rate. And so there's always this desire to like amp up everything you can today. I get that. That's a small percentage of the businesses that are out there. And so I just think you got to know, you got to stay in your lane and you got to surround yourself with people that play the game of business and life, wealth building, entrepreneurship, whatever it is at a higher level than you are to, you know, really hold you accountable, really inspire you, really, you know, help you shift your mindset. And so for you, you did something really special, Sue. You not only had an exit that, could support your lifestyle, but you decided ahead of time, like, Hey, let's say that we don't sell it. Let's say that this business falls apart. What's our number that we have to hit so that we can retire and we can enjoy our lifestyle as we see it today. You got to that number and you also sold your business. And so I'm curious how you built your net worth even outside of your business. So, you know, for us, it was uh, a, a myriad of things, certainly real estate, and also stocks and bond. I mean, we just, you know, we have an array of investments and it's been years that we've made more money from our investments than our business. I mean, it's been years and years and years. So I think that again, that is how you create wealth. I mean, and freedom, just like you talk about all the time, you're creating enough wealth so that it creates enough spinoff that you you're creating an income that's at least what you need to live. And then you don't stop. You just keep, you know, adding things to it and it, and you have the freedom to retire and to create a new business. That's right. And your, your story is so perfect, Sue, because I mean, you just said that you were making more on your investments than from your business. Obviously you then have a big exit and you can roll those proceeds into your investments, but now you have an education on investing outside of your you know, professional experience. And you've got a head start because you started doing this early. And if the business imploded, that's okay because you're still covered. But an interesting aspect is how lifestyle can change over time too, depending on your age, depending on health, depending on your family. Uh, I'd love to hear how that's kind of played out for you. Yeah, it, it really is. Because I, I love the idea on your podcast and in your book about you know, using your investments to create the lifestyle of your dreams. And certainly I think that's what everyone wants. First off, when I first started my business, there was an opportunity to like travel constantly. And I had small children and I thought, well, no success for me would be sleeping in my own bed at night so that I'm home with the kids. So I built the business around that. And then as uh, my daughter has been disabled for a lot of years and my father passed away. And so I also had my mother to take care of. And so I wanted to have enough money to take care of both of them. And so, you know, about to buy a house for my mom and provide her with what she needed and uh, to take care of my daughter, who was also in um, 
assisted living for quite a few years. And so it's, you know, that just takes cash. And so your lifestyle, you want to have enough money for your lifestyle, but also that lifestyle might include some of the requirements you have. I mean, as everybody, when they get into like their mid of middle of their life, their parents get older and you have a lot of requirements you got to take. And I think the saddest thing would be to not be able to take care of your parents or children that are in need. And so that's that was sort of what we did. And so um, I, I still continue. My mom passed, but my daughter, you know, she's a lot younger than I am. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a constant thing with her to uh, keep up with what's the next illness. <laughs> what's the next surgery. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. What a blessing to be able to do that. And I mean, all this in the world of health is expensive. I mean, it's hard enough to make sure that you're doing what you need for your immediate family, as opposed to even, you know, extending out. And so everything, you know, costs money, the more specialized, whatever the procedure is, the more it costs. And so it's just nice to be in a place where you have set yourself up to the way that you have, where you can cover what you need. And I mean, how amazing. A lot of people may not have the luxury of being able to provide for their daughter the way that you have. I just think that that's incredible. And just on so many levels that you could you could do that for your mother. And, and really, if anything else should happen, you're set. But it's because you made the plan early. It's because you were intentional. It's because you didn't rely on just your business. I mean, a lot of people pour all their money back into their business. And if their business fails... Or if they are the face of their business, so no one else wants to buy it, then that becomes really challenging. I know people all the time. I know a lot of baby boomers that are retiring because no one will buy their business because they are their business. And the moment they're gone, then there's no business. So it's a really delicate thing, but I, I, I love that you've done it the right way. And I'd really like to take some time just highlighting your new best-selling book. And so um, you talked about it a little bit earlier, The Trusted Leader. But what I'd like to get into are really some of your core values that you talk about in your book. And this is what has been used in different curriculum with universities. This is what's been used with a lot of different corporations and government agencies that you've worked with. So please tell us more about the actual, you know, subject material here. Yeah. So in this book, again, I talked about, it's about thinking and acting like a trusted leader. So it's the partnering approach. Remember I talked about when I was executive director and we took this partnering approach, this is the mindset and the values and the mindset is sort of how you think your intentions you remember the Pygmalion effect years and years ago of, you know, the teachers, what they believed about the students actually created the result. So the same thing is true in your business. And so there's 10 partnering intentions and there are six partnering values. And the values are really important because values are a cluster of beliefs. It's what you believe to be true. And those beliefs create attitudes. You can't see a person's beliefs, but you can see and hear and experience their attitudes. And then those attitudes create behaviors. So if you want to change your people's behaviors, you have to start with values. And so the core values for creating a high trust atmosphere, of course, starts with trust. And the underpinning of trust 
is really a, a commitment to being fair. No matter what happens, what we're going to be fair. Because think about it, conflict happens or distrust happens when I feel like somehow I'm being treated unfairly. And so you commit to being fair. And so it's about fairness. It's about transparency. So transparency is being willing to be open and honest, but also to share good, bad, and ugly. So you're not afraid to share openly. And your people are not afraid to share openly. So many times what I have seen is that you spent all this time hiring great people. You got the best of the best. And then you you create an atmosphere where they're afraid to speak up. And then when there's a big problem or a big opportunity, you don't even know about it. It's killed a lot of businesses, I'm just saying. Yeah, you you even say high trust equals high performance. Like that's one of your go-to sayings you talk about in your book. It's And that is kind of like a core foundational principle with how to build a great team, right? It's a principle we also have. Years ago, I started a nonprofit charitable organization called the International Partnering Institute, and they have sponsored five different university level studies on this model. And we know that you can save at least 10% of cost, 10% of time, and around 10% improvement in satisfaction between employees. And and we all there's other things too, like creativity, innovation, and, and you can't even have it until you've created a high trust atmosphere. And these things are additive. So it grows exponentially. So one of the other values that I think is so important is respect. And it, you know, it goes, it's a two-way street, but respecting people's point of view, people's perspective, abilities, because far too often we cut it off. You know, we go through the world and we think, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I've I've been around a while. I've I've done pretty good. A little bit of me is good. A lot of me would be great. (laughs) So we tend to judge others against ourselves instead of respecting them. That's a good point, because if you're not surrounding yourself with the right people, then you are going to think that you're the smartest person around and you never want to be the smartest person around. You always want smarter people around than, than you. A lot of people don't realize that, but I mean, the smartest people make sure that they are not the smartest people in any given room. I think that's absolutely true. But when there's fear, you don't do that. Or competition, fear slash competition, because competition in this case is really fear showing up. And it erodes then one of your other core values, which is collaboration, which we can all agree is one of the keys to building a dynamic organization, one that scales, one that permeates this electrifying culture. To me, collaboration is so awesome because I know from my work that there is 100% collective wisdom in a team, in a business. And that is what's kept me so excited about going in and working with teams and businesses for all these years. Because when I walk into the room and I have this group and they're open and sharing, I have no idea, no, does anyone else in that room know what that group's going to come up with? But I know they're going to come up with something that is phenomenal, extraordinary. And then I also have this, one of the intentions is people don't argue with what they help to create. 
So once you've created a forum for them to create, co-create, they own it and then they implement it. They engage and they implement it. And that's a big problem for most businesses. It just doesn't happen. And it happens because of collaboration, the collective wisdom. Dan Millman said, you know, no one is smart as smart as all of us. That's right. Yeah, that's so true. The last of the six is helpfulness. Because I think that it's, you know, you could say service or, but I really think it's about wanting to help. (laughs) You know, it's helping, being helpful, stepping up to the plate to help. I know when I work with teams and we're, you know, we're creating this cohesion and then people begin to say, well, we're, we're committed. We're certainly committed to our leader. We're committed to our business. We're committed to what we just co-created but I know that they are going to create something extraordinary when they say things like, we are committed to doing whatever it takes. And that's where helpfulness, the idea of a value of helpfulness comes in because that then, okay, what do we need to do? Let's help each other get there. And so many businesses, I mean, most businesses don't have that. They're working against each other. Well, what what do you mean you're going to do this? What do you 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 get this budget? No, I I want that budget. I mean, they're they're competing, and whenever you have competition in an interdependent company, it can't succeed. And one of the biggest disruptors that's happened worldwide in business, and it actually has happened everywhere. If you look at the maps on COVID, and it shows how interdependent the world is. Look at how we can't get parts for cars and we can't get groceries for the shelves. We are interdependent. And in an interdependent world, there is only win-win or lose-lose. Nothing else is possible. And yet our leadership models are based on somebody winning and somebody losing. Totally. And and that's so true because I used to work in an organization where basically the organization was split in half. There's an East half and a West half. And there were two CEOs and it's two people always competing against each other that actually don't even get along. And it really makes it hard. So there's, so part of this, there's this like toxic environment that starts to happen, but then there's this uh, desire to not share what's working with the other group so that you can be the first to like prove it out. And then there's just constant competition of sizing up each other. And it, again, it, it takes away from that collaborative work to grow the company together. And it really is a shame. And a lot of organizations are like that. It is. If you think about it mathematically, one plus one equals zero. That's what competition does. It's a zero sum game. They think of business as a zero sum game. Just can't work in an interdependent world. So I really think we haven't created a new paradigm for leadership in well over a hundred years. I really think we need a different, we need to play, we're playing a different game. We need different rules. <laughs> we need different leaders. Yeah, you're you're so right. And this is just such an incredible session with you. I just want to thank you for coming on the show and just ask you where we can find out more about you and, and uh, get our hands on your book. Oh, thank you so much. I've been such fun to be here. You can find me at Sudico, S-U-D-Y-C-O.com. And uh, the book, you can just put slash book, you can find the book. And that would be uh, great. And I also have a little 
gift for everyone. So if you're sitting here thinking, well, I wonder if I'm a trusted leader, or if I wonder where I fall along this continuum between fear and trust, I actually have a measurement tool called the Trusted Leader Profile. And you can get that for you guys alone at sudico.com slash profile. And you can measure where you fall. And in the profile, you're going to get a number between one and 15 that will tell you what your trust level is. And then you'll know it's a snapshot in time. It's a, you know, something to do with maybe your whole team and look at, well, where are we falling along here and why and wh- what's going on? You're also going to get two graphs. You're going to get your primary style, which will show you your normal style of leading, which are the norms you're creating in your own business right now as a leader. This is how you're leading. And then graph two, which is your perceived style of leading, which is how you think you're leading. And if there is a difference and there's five styles, and if you really have a significant difference between how you are leading and how you think you're leading, well, that's the first way to start to reconcile those things to begin to on your trusted leader journey. Well, thank you so much for joining us, for giving us some awesome content for this really cool assessment and profile. Sue, this is just great. And I want to leave today the way I leave every session that we get to spend together. uh, And that's by saying this, what's the one step that you can take today to move closer to financial freedom in a way that is in alignment with your goals, your values, who you are, a way that's on your terms, not someone else's, and a life not by default, but a life by design that you can proactively go after. Figure out what one step is and go after it today. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.